welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source of all things IFRS, technical accounting matters, business issues, current standard setting and regulatory updates. I'm your host, Ruth Preedy. Our topic today of IFRS Talks is looking at IS1 and we're going to be specifically looking at judgments and estimates. And I'm joined by our UK Accounting Consulting Services Leader, it's a long title, Peter Hogarth. Welcome back to the studio. Thank you, Ruth. And when we first talked about doing this podcast, I'm going to admit my error live on air, Peter. I said, what, what do you fancy talking about, Peter? And he basically said estimates and judgments. And I read estimates and just thought we were doing one on IS8. <laughs> so, Sorry to let you down. <laughs> we're not going to talk about that today. Well, we'll do IS8 another day. Another day, yes. <laughs> so um, as we're in IS1, could you first of all talk about what are judgments and estimates in the context of the standard? Happy to. The, the phrases themselves are quite often conflated in annual reports. You'll see a disclosure note that talks about, yeah. for example, significant judgments and estimates or critical judgments and estimates without actually a huge amount of distinction between the two phrases. And they are importantly very different, not least because the disclosure requirements, which I'm sure we'll chat about later on, yeah. uh, are actually quite different. So a judgment, what is a judgment? Well, I could be flippant at this point and say, go open your dictionary. Uh, it's any exercise of judgment uh, in the context of IS1 in particular that has the most significant effect on the amounts recognised in the financial statements. So these are judgments which might include, for example, uh, whether a, a an entity is acting as principal or agent in a revenue transaction. Yeah. Uh, maybe a judgment around whether a particular investment represents a subsidiary or associate or a joint venture or some other kind of joint operation. Um, so those are areas where, on the basis of all the evidence available, a view is taken about a particular nature or accounting treatment. In contrast, estimates, again relying on dictionary definitions, are assumptions or views about the future. And I think it's fair to say they're almost exclusively about the future. Somebody might well write in now and say, ah, how about this one? Mm-hmm. But you're broadly talking about estimates which involve amounts in a balance sheet, the ultimate resolution of which relies on certain outcomes, certain assumptions coming to fruition, um, a certain turn of events in the future. So the most obvious examples here are things like pension liabilities, uh, views about the recoverable, recoverable amount of an asset, so impairments, yeah. uh, fair values, uh, deferred tax recoverability, anything that involves a particular outcome about which there's no certainty, but that uncertainty is resolved by means of estimation. And of course, the accounts are littered with estimates. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, just if you just look at the definitions of estimates and judgments, you could say the whole set of accounts is full of estimates and judgments. Surely you don't have to individually disclose all of those. No, you're absolutely right. And and IS1 in particular talks about um, the more significant estimates being those where um, there is a significant risk, my emphasis, uh, of a material adjustment, again, my emphasis, arising within the next financial year. So the three key points there. Significant risk. If there's a trivial risk that something might happen, that doesn't necessarily therefore no. fall to be disclosable. And equally... The risk has to be of a material adjustment. So could the amount that has been, let's say, provided move materially in the next year because of the outturn being so materially different from the assumptions that have been made? And also importantly, and this is something that is really often overlooked, IS1 focuses on the risk of uh, an estimate being um, resolved or the, a difference arising in the next 12 months. Now, there are plenty of estimates out there, and again, I'll use pensions as the best example, where the ultimate resolution could be many, many years, decades perhaps into yeah. the future. Now, strictly speaking, that isn't what IS1 would capture. Although I have to say, I'm, I'm in agreement with our UK financial reporting regulator, the FRC, when they say that's useful information 
going beyond what yeah. IS-1 explicitly requires, but to ensure you at least do give what's required, distinguish the risk of adjustment in the next 12 months from any risk that might exist further into the future. Yeah. So it's only the more significant ones that need to be disclosed. Yeah. So the users are aware, effectively, of what, you know, some of the key things management have um, based that on. Now, you mentioned there, or you alluded to, you know, why does it even matter? We've got these estimates and judgments often in the accounts are sort of lumped together in one note. What is the distinction? Why is it important? You said they're disclosures. Could you expand on that a bit? The... The distinction is one that I think is best captured by something that one of our UK regulators said to me over and over again a number of years ago. He kept using the phrase, what's at risk here? Yeah. What's at risk here? And it kind of resonated with me in a way that perhaps some of the language in IS1 doesn't. In respect of the judgments, people can, and sadly they often do, repeat the words of an accounting standard, but it doesn't actually tell you which are the more subjective elements in these financial statements. In the case of consolidation, have there been any really fine judgments made around whether something is or is not a subsidiary, particularly if that potential subsidiary has significant debt? That could be a really important piece of information for the reader of the accounts. If all you do is say, entities are consolidated when the investor has control, blah, 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 that's not telling the reader a great deal. In fact, it's telling the reader nothing, actually. And the same would be true of estimates. If you think about impairment and Maybe that's a bad example because there are some specific disclosure requirements about impairment. Nevertheless, think about the impairment example. Merely saying impairment calculations involve the use of estimates, including of the uh, either value in use or fair value as cost of sale, which involves certain assumptions. So what? I'm I'm not learning anything. Whereas a reader of the accounts who understands that this particular CGU had this particular risk of impairment because of this, and here were the assumptions, but by the way, reflect the assumptions this way or that, they're learning something they didn't know before. Now, it's easy, of course, to think that that's giving away family secrets. But I've not yet spoken to an investor who didn't say that they looked favourably upon a company that was much more transparent in its disclosure. And at the extreme, that might easily be reflected in the cost of capital. Yeah. Yeah. So that that point around uh, sensitivities you would see there the disclosure requirements under estimates there. As well, when you were talking about judgments, that's like so important. Some of those things would, you know, massively change your financial statements making that judgment. So if you don't call them out that actually this was a big judgment we made and this is why, then the users, you know, don't have a full picture of what's happened in the account. So And, and again, it's the specific ones. Yeah. Telling people that judgment is involved in the preparation of financial statements, including in areas like consolidation, determining yeah. whether an arrangement contains a lease, I could go on. Yeah. It doesn't tell you anything. Yeah. Yeah. So on that, while we're saying like how important even just a judgment is, why why is this overall the topic of judgments and estimates so important? It's a good question. Why does it matter? Yeah. Um, I could be flippant and say it's only a disclosure after all. Yeah. I think it matters for a number of reasons. One is that it gives you a lot of information about the quality of the earnings of the balance sheet total, whichever is your particular statistic that you're interested in. The risk associated with those would very rightly be factored into any kind of investor's cost of capital. And investors do tell us time and again that good, clear information around where the judgments are, what estimates have been made is is critically important to them. I could cite any number of recent corporate failures where not just the investment community, but others, including um, governments, including regulators, have said this company did not give enough information about the risk that was inherent in this contract or this particular um, relationship. So it's critical, therefore, for effective communication that, again, where those risks are significant, um, that they are properly called out. 
I'll stress again the significance because it, it's too easy to produce a, a laundry list of all the possible estimates you might have. Yeah. Uh, and again, that, there's a risk of overdisclosure as much as under. Uh, in reviewing financial statements uh, as part of my day job, it, it's as often I'll, I will say to a, one of our client engagement teams, you've included this thing here under the list of significant estimates, but later on you say there is no possible alternative <laughs> outcome that could give a different answer. How yeah. can that be a significant yeah. estimate that IS1 would have you disclose? Yeah. And it gets taken out. Yeah. Yeah, you just want to focus on the key stuff. So on that, um, we obviously talked about one of the, the main um, differences between the tiers disclosure. Have you, as you've just mentioned your role, you do lots of reviews and things. Have you seen any sort of bad habits or things that you would like to give tips of what you could do better to people? The the, the bad habits uh, we've already talked about, I would say, are primarily around either boilerplate disclosure, which doesn't tell the reader anything, um, or it's about hinting that there being potentially a problem, which is then not elaborated upon. In, in terms of what, what the helpful tips... Um, I would like to lay claim to a list which our, our regulator, the FRC, published as a conclusion to a thematic review uh, a couple of years ago, which I still cite as being a really useful seven-step checklist yeah. to, to getting it right. Now, possibly there'll be some means of actually providing a link to yeah, anyone listening to this podcast that, for, uh, for the FRC's website. But seven steps, the first being if you want to make sure that you're capturing all of the disclosure properly, well, distinguish your judgments from your estimates, and that way you can make sure that for the estimates in particular, you're capturing all of the disclosure requirements. Yeah. And also that might highlight that actually some of your disc- critical judgments are not being disclosed. I've found that once the two are, are paired apart. Yeah. Um, as regards the judgments, really just focus on the amounts that are most significant. Don't just list everything, as I've already said. For the estimates, as I mentioned earlier on, with a mind um, towards the actual disclosure requirements, for those estimates that are longer tailed, if I might use that phrase, make sure you separate the disclosure of the amount that's at risk in the next 12 months and distinguish that from anything that's at risk of uh, variability beyond the 12-month period, just to satisfy the, the disclosure requirement again. Be company-specific uh, and avoid using boilerplate, as I've already mentioned. Make sure it's clear about what is the amount at risk. Uh, you might well have a very large balance of, I don't know, receivables, but there's only one receivable that's risky. So if your balance of receivables is is a billion, yeah. and there's only 200 million, which is material, which is the risky amount, it's not much use telling the reader that within your one billion of receivables is an amount which is at risk because of dot, yeah. dot, dot. It's, it's going part of the way. Yeah. But back to my phrase, what's at risk here? What's likely to change? Letting the reader know that actually it's a balance of 200 million that's at risk is is actually meaningful. Assumptions. What are the assumptions? And what are the most important assumptions? Um, it, it doesn't always follow uh, when thinking about impairment that the most important assumption is the discount rate. It might not be. Yet that's the one that's almost always given and that's quite often given. exclusively <laughs> given. Um, across all CGUs, across every country. Absolutely. Same discount rate. Yep, absolutely. And sensitivity. Just by how far might these assumptions have to move before you start yeah. getting into problems? It is a disclosure requirement of IAS one in a roundabout way, and it's again not always given. Yeah, really helpful. Thank you, Peter. And I think you know, I'm not sure how much more we can add on IAS one definitions and how important it is, but just having that really clear disclosure and distinction between the two, um, and like you said, keeping in mind what is what is at risk. I think that's a really key takeaway for us. Anything else you want to cover with us before we come to the end of our podcast and give a link to that thematic review you mentioned? Uh, probably just a couple of things because some people who are listening into this podcast might well be auditors, yeah, uh, either current or, or lapsed auditors. But this is not just an area of focus for financial reporting regulators. Audit regulators too yeah. uh, quite often ask questions about the extent of work that's been performed in the area of 
uh, auditing judgments and estimates, certainly when the AQR published their review in the UK, they, they drew attention to that. Uh, and also the uh, Audit Standard Set of the IAASB has been looking to revise uh, ISA 540 to introduce other additional procedures around the audit of um, estimates uh, and the audit work that is done around estimates. That's not effective yet, it's, it's a little way off yet, but it does show that it, yeah, it's a number of different parties are all focusing at the same time on judgments and estimates and, and the importance thereof within the financial statements. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. Good parting words for us to realise the significance of this topic. Um, so thank you very much for joining us and thank you, Peter, again. We'll have you back for ISA as I've written the questions. <laughs> um, and for those people that want more information, you can either find them on Inform or our website, pwc.com forward slash IFRS. Um, and as part of the description, we'll add the link to the, uh, the thematic review from the FRC. Um, thank you for joining us. Stay tuned and happy accounting. The preceding programme was brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.